Millie Long, one of the co-editors-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and I am so pleased today to have joining me Dr. Nina Abraham, who is Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. She is a consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and, and most pertinently as it pertains to our discussion today of the newest guideline for which she was the senior author, is she is Director of the Cardiogastroenterology Clinic at Mayo. So Nina, we're so thrilled to have you join us, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Millie. Thank you so much for having me here today. So I have to start off with this field of cardiogastroenterology. It's really a unique field, and you're really the pioneer in this field. And, and I'm curious, how did your interest in this come about? Oh, you know, this was something where being an astute clinician and having research grants at the same time made a connection that I probably wouldn't have ordinarily have made. About 25 years ago, I received my first federal grant, and at the time I was studying non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and the impact on GI bleeding and endoscopy. And one of the things that I noticed was that the largest group of bleeders were actually cardiac patients on aspirin. And I also noticed that they were often being prescribed antiplatelet drugs like Plavix, as well as anticoagulant drugs like warfarin at the same time. And they were really the ones who were at higher risk of bleeding. And then wearing my epidemiology trained hat, I'm a trained epidemiologist, I, I got thinking, you know, 22 years ago, those are baby boomers. The older they get, the more cardiac disease they're going to have. And so I pivoted my research endeavors back then to look specifically at bleeding issues related to these, what we call antithrombotic drugs, which are essentially blood thinning drugs on the GI tract. And that turned out to be a, a really useful pivot, both clinically and in research. Oh, absolutely. And these agents have just exploded over the past two decades. And it takes such an intense knowledge base to truly understand the mechanisms of each. And obviously, there's some guidance needed for our field in this arena. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely right. I wish my forecasting predictions were always this accurate. I would have powerballed my way to retirement a long time ago if I was that good at predicting the future. But at this point in time, you know, 20 some years after I started all of this, about 40% of U.S. adults have one or more forms of cardiovascular disease that require the chronic prescription of one or more of these drugs, and that group is only getting bigger. And so knowledge about this is so important, and I think that's why for the last 10 or so years, maybe 15 years, this has become a really important part of GI practice, part of our board certifications and recertifications, and is always featured as educational lectures at the national stage. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the uh, missions, obviously, of the ACG is to bring this knowledge to our membership and make it clinically applicable. And that brings us to your most recent endeavor, which is the newest guideline on the use of these agents or non-use and what we should be doing in the setting of acute GI bleeding and also even routinely for endoscopic procedures. Could you describe a little bit the process of development of this guideline? I know it was a joint effort with the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology. Yes, thanks. You know, the American Journal of Gastroenterology has been a leader in publishing high-quality guidelines sponsored by the American College of Gastroenterology. But because this was a topic that was so ubiquitous in North America and around the world, we wanted to pair up with the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, which really produces guidelines with a very high level of rigor. And so by teaming up with methodologists and gastroenterologists in Canada, as well as I think the leading thrombosis expert in this field who happened to be a McMaster, we were able to create a guideline that I think addresses the most common 
clinical questions that have emerged since the last update on this topic was published back in 2016. And this really does address those questions with a level of methodologic intensity that I don't think I've ever experienced. This is my sixth guideline I've participated in creating on this topic. I've done others with the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, as well as the International GI Bleeding Group. And by far, this level of rigor is unprecedented. The process for developing this guideline took a little longer than usual. And I can tell you from the number of people who asked me, is it going to be published? When's it coming out? <laughs> the time required to develop this was really a reflection of the fact that it had to be very thoughtfully conceived of, developed. The process had to be agreed upon. The literature searches had to be done across two countries in duplicate, reproduced. And then we had a pandemic. So on top of all of this, what we had hoped to have published probably about 18 months ago is getting published this month. Well, it's very exciting because I think these data are going to be really useful for our readers. And interestingly, this time, not only we have the guideline, which we're going to dig into now, but also I'll have you speak as we discuss some of the data about a dissemination piece that you added as well to really help our readership apply these recommendations to practice. Yes, this dissemination tool, I think, will be a new feature for members of the American College of Gastroenterology or for readers of the Red Journal, which will be welcome. And what this does is helps bridge the gap between the rigor of the guidelines, which can sometimes seem a little academic, and the practical, well, how do I use this in the clinical setting? And the difference between the two is the guidelines are very much bounded by the grade approach which is very specific in how we approach the literature search, the interpretation of the literature, and how we write up the recommendations. Whereas we have a little bit more latitude to fill in the blanks for clinicians in the dissemination tool. The dissemination tool was authored primarily by myself and Alan Barkin, who was the primary author from the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology, as well as our thrombosis expert, Dr. Jim Ducatis, and our cardiology expert, Dr. Peter Noseworthy. In addition, our two other gastroenterologists representing the United States, Lauren Lane and Canada, Jennifer Telford, also contributed to making sure that the clinical relevance was there for clinicians. So I would view these as companion and complementary publications, which is why it's so wonderful the editorial staff has decided to publish them in the same journal. Absolutely. I think that both will be useful. And particularly as we dig into some of these data, I think you've done a really nice job of figures and tables that help us to understand exactly what we should be assessing. In my uh, endoscopy suite, I'm going to print them off and put them on the wall right next to where I'm doing my endoscopy reports and helping me to triage things like when to restart anticoagulation and so many of the nice things that you summarize. So let me start with digging a little bit into the data. You know, some of your recommendations focus on managing the patient with acute GI bleeding. Clearly, this is something we all see commonly in our hospital-based practices. Can you define that for us? Who are these groups that were these recommendations apply to for acute GI bleeding? So acute GI bleeding related to antiplatelets and anticoagulants are the number one cause of GI bleeding right now at this point point in time. And these are the patients we commonly see who present to the hospital with low blood pressure, right red blood coming from the bottom or vomiting, uh, what looks like the coffee grounds or their coffee filter, which we call coffee ground emesis, 
And often these patients are on these drugs. If they warrant inpatient hospitalization, we're addressing their care and the management of these drugs in this guideline. And we define it very specifically in terms of two levels of seriousness of inpatient bleeding, both the ones that I think are more common, which are the ones who are symptomatic, but who can be stabilized with resuscitation, and then those who we would considering life-threatening. And I'd like to pause and just talk about life-threatening hemorrhage, because this is a very specific definition from the perspective of cardiologists as well as hematologists. And this is where it was really important to have that expertise of our non-gastroenterologists on our panel, because some of our recommendations do tell you that if in the case of life-threatening hemorrhage, recommendations that we say are not needed in routine care of GI bleeding patients might be appropriate. So for the purposes of this guideline, life-threatening hemorrhage is defined as a major clinical overt or apparent bleeding that results in hypovolemic shock or severe hypotension requiring pressors or surgery uh, associated with a decrease in hemoglobin greater than five grams per deciliter or requiring greater than five units of transfusion of packed cells are obviously at risk of causing death. So that's, that's just a different level of GI bleeding. Absolutely. And that precise definition, help, I think, to help us to kind of decide who those two categories are, and it helps us to be able to then apply the right recommendations. In terms of thinking about those two types of acute GI bleeding, one of the things that, oh gosh, it dates back decades is the use of FFP to try to bring the INR down, setting of acute bleeding. Is there a role for that anymore? Is that something we should be considering? No, that's the short answer. And I think if you are still using FFP, this is your opportunity to update your clinical paradigm. The transfusion and thrombosis societies have been recommending the avoidance of fresh frozen plasma in patients with acute GI bleeding for quite a few years because it actually takes transfusion of a large volume of FFP slowly to make a difference in the ability of the patient to clot. And so oftentimes, I'm sure you'll relate to this, we, we would be saying, hang FFP on call to the endoscopy unit. But as I say to my fellows, I would have been better off having that hung for myself as opposed to my patient, because it was really not helping my patient that much. And the hematologists and cardiologists are also very aware of the risk of transfusion-related adverse events such as pulmonary edema and congestive heart failure, which is another reason why those large volumes of FFP are no longer recommended. So in the setting of life-threatening hemorrhage where you really want to reverse someone's anticoagulated or, or bin blood status, you should be using prothrombin complex concentrate, TCC. Great. Great. I love what when the simple answer, no more, no more FFP. What about, you know, obviously we have our patients who are on warfarin. You know, we talked about that earlier who come in uh, with acute GI bleeding. Is there, is there a role for vitamin K in those individuals? Again, this is another one of those important paradigm shifts. And that's because of the pharmacodynamics of vitamin K and how it is used in the contemporary setting of GI bleeding. 
The short answer is again, no, you should not be using vitamin K to reverse a supertherapeutic INR bleed. And, that, and the two reasons are, are, are this. First of all, it takes 24 to 48 hours for vitamin K to start working. And our current best practice data for the management, endoscopic management of GI bleeding is to perform endoscopy within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So it really doesn't have a role in the acute bleeding management paradigm. But if a patient bleeds on warfarin, and these are the sort of distinctions that we make in the dissemination tool. If the patient's bleeding on warfarin, and for some reason, the multidisciplinary care team agrees that this patient shouldn't be on warfarin again, so they want to normalize warfarin to get the patient off the drug, then vitamin K could be appropriate, but not as a, a measure against the GI bleed, but as a transition off the drug. Makes sense. Okay, one more that I think is kind of historical. You and I may be dating ourselves in terms of our <laughs> management of some patients with GI bleeding, but are platelet transfusions for the patient you know, who has an antiplatelet agent, are platelet transfusions ever indicated? Here's my third resounding no. You should not be giving platelets. And that's because we have good data now that the transfusion of platelets in patients who are not thrombocytopenic uh, actually increases the risk of death. And we have that not only in the GI bleeding setting, but also in other settings such as post-cabbage and after intracerebral hemorrhage. So definitely not, not something you should be doing. No FFP, no platelet transfusions, and no vitamin K in the acute GI bleeding setting. Great. I think those are really good take-home point for our listeners. Any other take-home points that you'd like to nail home for the patient if the setting in the setting of acute GI bleeding? I think the two big ones are, what do we do for reversal? Both reversal of warfarin and then reversal of the direct oral anticoagulant agents. And I think it's worth pausing here because still in the focus on reversal is something that has taken more of a prominent perspective since the 2016 guidelines were written in 2015, because we didn't have a lot of these agents. Mm -hmm. So first of all, when it comes to the reversal of warfarin for life-threatening hemorrhage, Prothrombin complex concentrate, four-factor PCC is the way to go. It has been shown to reliably correct the INR with very low volume. So that's the way to go. Now, when it comes to our direct oral acting agents, these are drugs like the direct thrombin inhibitor, Pradaxa, as well as the factor 10A inhibitors such as Eliquis or uh, Zeralto we are recommending against the use of reversal agents, which will probably surprise a lot of people because these new agents were really something that physicians and clinicians really thought they needed to be able to safely use these drugs. But what we have found by looking at the data is the data supporting their use in GI bleeding is actually very, very poor. And because these direct oral anticoagulants are fast-acting drugs, if you can support the patient hemodynamically, often the patient will excrete out the excess drug that's putting them at a toxic anticoagulated level. And you can help actually start controlling the bleed just with resuscitation. So yes, there would be a rare occasion when you would need to use a reversal agent. And that would truly be a life-threatening hemorrhage. And even in that case, we suggest in the guideline that you only consider it we're not, we're not embracing this based on the evidence. Yeah, that's great. That, that's really helpful. 
Let me shift our discussion now to a different setting, one that I think you and I as gastroenterologists deal with nearly every day, which is the elective procedural setting. One of the things that you all discuss in the guideline and in the dissemination tool is risk stratification or thrombosis risk. Can you describe that? What should we be doing for risk stratification in the outpatient setting? Well, the most important thing to remember from a cardio GI perspective is there's no tug of war between the heart and the GI tract. The heart always wins, right? And so it's really important, uh, as you mentioned, that if you're going to take one table, <laughs> there's a table in the dissemination tool, as well as the guideline that talks about the periprocedural risk stratification of patients receiving anticoagulants. And then in the dissemination tool in the paragraph right below that, we talk about the high-risk patient who is on antiplatelet agents. And you need to know both because number one, you really shouldn't be doing elective endoscopy in those high-risk patients, right? The period of time at which they are considered at high risk is short-lived. And so during that time, defer elective procedures. The other reason why it's important that you know who these high-risk patients are is because if for some reason that elective procedure does need to be done, which I would argue there are very few circumstances where it should be done, then it's really important that you have multidisciplinary conversations, not just with the patient's cardiac and hematologic care team, but also with the patient, because they're going to be at increased risk of having a cardiac event if you withhold their antithrombotic drug for a short period of time to do the procedure. No, absolutely. Timing is key, is what I'm hearing you say, and minimizing those risks for our patients. On the flip side, one of the things that I think for many of our fellows trying to work on quality improvement projects in this arena, but we risk stratify, we hold agents when appropriate before procedures. But what about restarting them? I mean, I think that's something that sometimes gets left behind. And it's not something we as the gastroenterologists, even though we held it, kind of necessarily restart in the right time frame. Do your guidelines address this, restarting these agents? We formerly had PICO questions to address the resumption of these drugs. And the sad answer is the data is not there to really adequately inform that question. Unfortunately, we can't tell you, well, if you stop drug X this day, then you should start it on day endoscopy plus whatever. And that's because the data is not there. This highlights to us an incredible gap in the literature that needs to be filled. Uh, which we've highlighted in the guideline, as well as the dissemination tool as an area for future research. In the dissemination tool, we give you some practical advice based on the literature. When it comes to warfarin, remember it takes up to five days for a patient to become therapeutic. So usually warfarin should be started same day if you've done a diagnostic procedure or a low-risk endoscopy procedure, or within you know, 24 to 48 hours, if not. Similarly, if you're on a direct oral anticoagulant, this is where the data is best. Restarting the direct oral anticoagulant the day after the procedure has been shown to be safe in the PAUSE study, the large clinical trial uh, international study of over 3,000 patients. And Dr. Jim Ducatis, who was actually the PI of that study, was gracious enough to let Dr. Barkin and I get our hands on the GI-related data from the PAUSE study. And we share that in the guideline, and that has been uh, actually since written up and submitted for publication. 
So yes, we know that the day after the procedure, if you're on a direct oral anticoagulant, you should be restarting the procedure. You want that period of temporary interruption to be as short as possible because the heart wins, right? right. We can fix the GI bleed if we should have a post-procedural complication of bleeding, but it's harder to fix a heart attack, a stroke, or hopefully not cardiac death. Now, do any of those recommendations or suggestions, I know there's not all terribly high level data surrounding some of the restarting, does it differ by procedure? Do, do either your guideline or the dissemination tool provide us kind of what are the highest risk procedures? Yeah, uh, for yeah. this is another massive gap in the GI literature, which is really surprising. And, and I didn't realize how big a gap it was until we started digging into the evidence supporting what is a high risk procedure that we perform endoscopically that would be most likely to create a situation of post-procedural bleeding. We have had for many years this algorithm in our head of what's high risk versus not. And when you look at what supports it, it's really poor data. So the short answer is we really don't know <laughs> definitively, but we do know uh, experientially what high-risk procedures are. And in general, those are procedures where there's a large amount of mucosal disruption, right? The removal of large polyps greater than one centimeter, uh, large endoscopic mucosal resections, radiofrequency ablation of esophageal tissue where there's lots of mucosal damage. Those tend to be the hallmarks of higher risk procedures where bleeding is just harder to control. In those settings, it may be acceptable to withhold the resumption of the antiplatelet or the anticoagulant for a longer period of time. But again, it's that fine balance of the patient's inherent risk of thrombosis, the like, how, how good was your field at the end of your procedure? We would you encourage you to ensure immediate hemostasis when at all possible, and then restart the drug as soon as that immediate hemostasis is assured. Rel clinically speaking, practically speaking, there really isn't a reason to hold drugs for more than 48 hours after a procedure, even a large one, because we have so many options now for hemostasis that are mechanical. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a key take-home point. I, I like the heart is king here. We need to make sure that we don't cause worsen complications, you know, by not restarting these therapies. So I, I'm going to take that message home. But speaking of, speaking of that, I want to give you an opportunity to give a couple of really important take-home messages to our listeners. You know, all of this work that you put into this amazing guideline, are there a few points that you really just want to make sure our listeners are aware of um, coming out of, uh, you know, obviously the, the graded work as well as the dissemination tool? You know, I think I could summarize it in three points. Number one, what I keep saying, there is no tug of war between the heart and the GI tract. The heart always wins. Number two, go back to your basics. Airways breathing circulation, not airways breathing called GI. Oftentimes when it comes to acute GI bleeding, just managing resuscitation can solve a lot of your problems related to antithrombotic related GI bleeding. And finally, in the acute GI bleed, GI bleed setting, don't be at such a rush to new, use the new drugs that are available. Just because it's new doesn't necessarily mean the evidence is there to support its use. And in the elective setting, the same principles apply. 
think first of the patient's thrombotic risk, and then in conjunction with that, the likelihood of a post-procedural bleed, and the heart always wins. The shortest period of time of temporary interruption is the right period of time. No, that's great. I, I'm going to stick with that 24 hours when I can. <laughs> so with that, I'd like to wrap up this podcast and just give my most heartfelt thanks to Dr. Nina Abraham, who is really a pioneer in the field of cardiogastroenterology, who's been discussing her newest guideline, a collaborative effort between the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology and the ACG, published this month in American Journal of Gastroenterology. Thank you for listening. Thank you.